Hello, my name's Ian Campbell from Palliative Care Australia. Welcome to Thursdays at 3, conversations with people living and working at the end of life. I'm joined by a very special guest this afternoon, Theresa Plain from Sydney, who's the New South Wales Senior of the Year for 2023. And come Australia Day, she might be the Australian Senior of the Year. How do you feel about that, Theresa? Oh, dear. That makes me very nervous. <laughs> Being New South Wales senior citizen is, is, is quite enough. <laughs> but I'd be very honoured if that should happen. Very, very honoured. The palliative of... care community will be cheering you on and would love to see you elevated to be the Senior Australian of the Year come Australia Day. Great recognition for your long career as a registered nurse, as a, as a hospital manager, as a palliative care pioneer, as someone who's provided care on all those different levels, social, emotional, medical care for many decades to your, your community. What is it about this recognition you think the Australia Day Committee has, has singled out? What is it about you that you think has captured their imagination, got you this attention? Uh, probably my persistence and resistance I would say, because although I, I started this back in 1978, all through the 80s, in, uh, in the 80s, I, I suffered two really heavy, crushing blows. One was the death of my husband in a car accident. Secondly, was to be attacked under parliamentary privilege for all the work that I had done as running a, a religious hospital and being a pseudo nun uh, and using my patients as tr tools. Well, I couldn't defend myself, but I didn't need to because the public defended me. There were lots of letters in the, uh, the daily newspapers. Your work spoke for itself, the, the lives well, of the people you touched. They stood yeah. up, they had your back. That is right. And I'd recently, before before that, the uh, the Woman's Weekly and Visible Difference had awarded me um, a prize for being a person who made a visible difference in people's lives across Australia. And that was they asked people to write in. And that was very thrilling, too. But um, that was the only award so that I had. <laughs> Therese, there's lots about your life to explore. You've just touched on on some of the points there today that I'm I'm keen to explore in our in our conversation. But let's let's start at the start. You were born in 1933 in Sydney. Tell yes. us about your childhood, your adolescence. Were you a good girl or a bad girl? I had a very difficult childhood. I I started my life in a foundling home. Um, I was. Eventually, and that, and that was at uh, Waitara. And when you uh, say a founding, Teresa, do you mean like a, a, a in the in the care of the state in, in in an orphanage? What do you mean by founding home? A founding home. Well, my my mother was unmarried, and um, I was placed in a founding home for adoption. Right. Uh, that that never ever happy happened. It's a long story, but I did eventually end up back with my um, family of origin, but I somewhat grew up a bit like a weed because nobody seemed to claim me. And I was, um, I spent all of my life with the nuns and it was the nuns who, uh, the mercy nuns, 
who really nurtured me, educated me. And I, when I did my matriculation, I had no chance of going to university. But I had only had two choices, three choices, really. I could either be a teacher, a nurse, or a nun. Well, I didn't want to become a nun. I reluctantly went uh, into nursing. What I felt I had a talent for, and have since proved it in my 80s, was uh, <laughs> acting, acting and writing. And I could see the television was coming, and I wanted to uh, be part of that. But my, and I, so I, I was a bit of a reluctant nurse. But my sister tutor took me aside and she sat me down and said, now, Teresa, she said, you're a bright girl. In the theatre, she said, you'll, only, you'll have more uh, uh, dinner times than dinners. Now, just settle down, do your training. And she said, then you've got something behind you. So I did that. But then, as I've said in a couple of interviews recently, I was the most death-denying nurse ever. Yes, and tell us about that. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, I was... I was a student nurse and I was feeding this person and he died and I I was so shocked and I went around to the desk and there was a nun sitting there and I said I think Mr. So-and-so has died and she looked up in that way nuns can look at you yes. said, nurse go back and make sure so I, well, I didn't go back did I I flew around the corner and there was a fire staircase there and I went down the staircase. I was never coming back. And then the uh, senior nurse who was on duty, because I trained in the hospitals, she came after me and she said, now, now, come on, dear. She said, this is going to be the last act of love you will ever do for any of your patients. Come and we'll do it together. So she took me back and she, she explained to me what death was and took me through all that process. And her name was Kath Cunningham. And I remember her and I thank her to this day. That, that business of having uh, a support. Now, this is one area where in modern nursing I worry about. In the hospital trained, you know, we have real buddies. I sometimes think in the present university, training do people really then they're sort of not living together as we did mm -hmm. we were real buddies and real supports for each other but that's just another thing i think about but then uh, as i say i um, i recovered from that i finished my training and um yes and then i i um, went on to do midwifery and then i was yes and then i, I was Yes. You've covered both ends of life by the, by the sounds of, of things, midwifery and palliative care. Yes, and that's one of the things um, I used to make a comment about. When I built Mount Carmel, of course, it was surgical and obstetric. And the, um, the nursery in the obstetric department actually became the chapel in palliative care because I closed the obstetrics. Mm -hmm. uh, Blacktown had opened in 1964. I opened Mount Carmel in 1962 with 19 beds. I have to tell you, it grew to be 100 in a very yes. short time. And that's a question that people always ask me. How did I fund a private hospital in a housing commission 
area. And this was the recent Seven Hills Housing Commission development. Mm -hmm. Green Valley, if you remember, was the first. And um, so, yes, there were, oh, I think there were something like 10,000 people in this short area, all in the Housing Commission homes. Well, what did I do? I went out to all the school, schools, the PNC meetings, and I talked the people there and the parents into joining the lowest scale of the hospital fund. So anybody could come into Mount Carmel and be admitted for whatever it was, hand in their hospital contribution fund book. I made the claim on the fund. It didn't cost them a penny. So there was no Blacktown Hospital. That didn't come along until 1964. The closest hospital was Parramatta. And of course, that was grossly over, overcrowded. And where you know Blacktown is today, um, there were flower farms and there was nothing for us at Mount Carmel to, um, in the middle of the night, for somebody to arrive, the baby almost in the bloomers, shall we say, with dirt up to their knees where they had been growing flowers or growing vegetables. There were lots of these farms about. It's an extraordinary development in that area. You know, I've been out there recently, they just just completely blows me away. Teresa, so many rabbit holes to go down with you in your life, life story, your adventurous life. Um, but I'm keen to go back to one point you made around you being a, a nurse that, that denied death. And I think we still see that in, in the medical profession today, that people in the medical profession, nurses, doctors, allied health professionals, don't understand palliative care or are reluctant to engage with palliative care, even, even today. What do you put that down to? How do we build that bridge so that more health professionals accept and understand palliative care? Well, to accept palliative care and to be able to work with the dying, you've got to be able to accept your own mortality. And so many people just cannot do that. When you are working with people who are dying, you're actually looking into a mirror. You look into, and, and as I say, unless you're comfortable, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. And I see this all the time that yes, nurses and especially doctors can be, uh, and this um, what I call futile treatment going on when somebody is actually dying. They just don't seem to be able to realize that this person is dying. And it, it is a problem because the person themselves don't want to give up the hope. They want to believe that the treatments are all working so please give me more and a lot of it is 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 futile and this is why i really want to see it's going to be one of my things uh, in uh, 2023 is to see that palliative care is moved much further back into the care earlier into the care yes. of the patient there is so much that can be done in in palliative care by the modern palliative care teams mm -hmm that will make for a, a good life and death right to the end of these of people who are with life-limiting illnesses. We really need to get people thinking beyond those last days, those last weeks when it comes to palliative care. It can really have an impact in people's lives for the months, the years before, Absolutely. before death. Look, if, if, we, if we don't take care of the primary caregivers and others that are involved in the dying right and have them express their um their grief you're going to have problems in the 
deeper in their bereavement period, and mm -hmm. particularly with children, that can last right throughout their lives. It, it's very, very important that people are supported in their anticipatory grief, that all unfinished business is attended to in every family, for heaven's sake. There is argy-bargy and, um, you know, somebody needs to forgive somebody or uh, you need to forgive, you know, it's, it's in every family, mine included. Teresa, I'm keen to take you back to your, your globe-trotting days, um, getting to understand palliative care and studying palliative care. You, you've been through the UK, USA and Canada in, as, as study tours, if, if you like, and you even, you even visited the great St Christopher's Hospice in London and, and the, dame, the dame herself, Dame Cecily Saunders. Dame Cecily Saunders, what a formidable character. Tell us about this place and this woman. They're seen as the home of palliative care. What's been your experience? Oh, very, look, the departure from mediocrity uh, in at St Christopher's Hospice in uh, uh, in the Canada um, Institution of Balfourmount, the Royal Victoria, was just such a departure from what I knew, what I knew to be here in Australia. I was like an apostle. I just cannot tell you. I just lapped it all up. I saw this multidisciplinary team, Dame Cecily Saunders, Mary Bames, I think it was Dr. Lamerton, um, all working together to, to really support the dying person and their family. And they ignited something in me which has never, never gone out. And, and of course, Balfour, uh, Professor Balfour Mount, we actually brought him out here to Australia, the Outstretched Hand Foundation did. And I think it was 19, it could have been 1988, I think, when we brought Balfour Mount out. And um, un unfortunately, it was aimed at general practitioners. And we didn't get as many as we thought at that time. It was a bit, bit of a disappointment, just showing that, you know, this uh, death-denying attitude of a lot of doctors. Mm -hmm. mm. Tell us about Dame Cecily. You described her as a formidable character. Oh, very, very formidable. And I have used um, hypnosis. Now, th this will perhaps shock people. I have used uh, hypnosis, and I'll use another expression, a, a co-meditative approach to dying. I'll explain that. But hypnosis for the control of pain. Now, I first started using this in midwifery, and I was taught uh, hypnosis by Dr. Leonard Lotsoff, who who had come out from South Africa, and it, it, it worked. And so I decided I would try this when I was in palliative care, and I dared to mention this to Dame Cecily. Well, was I taken to pieces? That was that was just a lot of nonsense. You know, it was all proper medicine. None of this. Focus, focus stuff here. Yeah. Oh, I was very, uh, I got put in my place. Yeah. A, meditative, a meditative approach to dying, I think she thought the same thing of that. And this is a very, very simple process, and I've taught it to many, many people. Those people keeping, what I say, keeping the vigil when people are dying. Mm -hmm. Just to be there, to be centered in yourself, to be totally aware of what is happening 
here and you sink your breathing to that of the patient. Mm -hmm. You just breathe gently in and out. And as you breathe out, you go gently Now, I can assure you, or anybody watching, um, and I have spoken to many nurses about this, that it works. That the dying person will become calm and quiet, and it does help them. Mm -hmm. um, and hypnosis, too, I think, helps them, because you can take them on uh, journeys down a ski slope. Ski slope. Yes. Um, you can take them into rainforests. You can do wonderful things with hypnosis, with their imagination and their mind. Teresa, it's really interesting and heartening to hear you hear you explain and talk about your experience being in the room when someone's dying. It's an experience that most of us don't have until we find ourselves in the middle of it. Can you give us a head start? What's it like being there for someone who is dying. Tell us about the dying process and, and what you've witnessed, both in terms of the life that's leaving us, but the people who share the room as well. You bring tears to my eyes when you talk about that, because people will die in their own unique way. Mm -hmm. um, to be with somebody who's dying, to sit there and hold their hand, a little um analogy of that uh, and i'll ramble a bit people know i ramble uh, i'll ramble a bit it's a bit like buying um a platform ticket now you are too young and most of the people viewing this will be too young to know what a platform ticket is but when i was a little girl and i was going back to the nuns uh, i would get on the train and my auntie would buy a platform ticket and she would come on and make sure that I had a lolly and I had uh, my case was all up and she would take as much care of me as possible but when the guard blew his whistle she had to get off the train this is what I see um, palliative care as we all buy a platform ticket to do everything possible to meet all the needs if we can of this person that's going on the journey Mm -hmm. They're going on their own. I mean, when we're born, we've got our mother there too. Yes. But when we die, we're totally on our own. So there's just this person who's bought the platform ticket, or many people. And we're there to hold that hand uh, gently. Um, you, are, you are asking me what happens. Um, It's extraordinary. I don't know what happens. I do know that that the dying person is totally in control of what has happened, even though they may appear to be unconscious. And I've sat with many, 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 many dying people, kept the vigil, as I say. Mm -hmm. um, they seem to be totally in control. There can be a family with a wife there of maybe 50 years. She's waiting. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to see somebody that you've loved all your life take their last, last breath? It's traumatic. I have so often seen this that I, I would explain it in the bereavement period. 
She might go outside to have a cup of tea. Your sister would come in, go outside and have a cup of tea. When that person had left the bedside, that was the time that person died. Mm -hmm. Or the same if there was a, a daughter who was slightly hysterical. Um, the dying person would wait yeah. for that person to leave the room. They seem to be totally in control. We all know Choosing anybody who works. Choosing their moment. They're choosing their moment. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think, you know, any palliative care staff should never say to somebody, well, you know, the relatives always want to know when somebody's going to die. Well, you can't say when somebody's going to die. You, you know, they are nearing the end of their journey. Um, sometimes that well, we all know, anybody who works in palliative care, that they're capable of hanging on until somebody in England, you know, catches a flight and then mm -hmm. might get delayed in Singapore, yes. they'll wait even further. Yeah. They can yeah. wait until that person comes. Now, what is it that controls? Uh, well, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. Life's but great mystery. I, I certainly believe, I believe wholeheartedly, and that's one of the gifts of uh, the dying have given me, I believe that this life is not an end. It's merely a transition. Um, I never, I never like when somebody is dying to be stroking the top of their head. Now we, we know this is the crown chakra, and I might sound like you know some hippie talking about chakras, but we're told they're there. But this is the crown chakra, and I, I somehow believe that the soul, the essence, the being of that person. It seems to go. I, I, I don't. I can't. You know, I could cry. I just wanted. I'll tell. I'll tell a very personal story. My son, who um, imagine that he was I, you know, all this so-called experience in in palliative care nursing. At the time that Andrew went into his dying trajectory, I was doing a, a study. I was based in the uh, intensive care unit at Westmead Hospital, doing a study for the Kidney Foundation into why people do or they do not donate their organs. Now, how did that come about? That came about because when Carl was killed uh, and he was on life support in, in Westmead, um, I was asked if uh, we would, would donate his organs. And regretfully, the person who asked did it in a most unprofessional sort of uncaring manner and I was incredibly shocked by this and Margaret Elder who'd been the social worker at Mount Carmel was with me and we were both shocked but we, we won't go there. As a result of that I wanted to and having had that experience I wanted to do something about it so I went into the Red Cross um, uh, transplant department and said, you know, why, why is this? And that ended up in my doing this study, being funded by the um, Kidney Foundation, into why they do or, or they don't. And a lot of it is to do with communication. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm having a senior moment. Um, <laughs> I take um, so, yes, my son, oh God. Um, Andrew went into his dying trajectory. He, he was at home. He was, uh, he was dying of AIDS. He was offered 
treatment and he said no he didn't want that he wanted to he said I'll just go home with my mum and um, and um, we went home I was working I couldn't because it was a, 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 a funded study and it had to be ready for the bereavement um, symposium in Stockholm of that same year I couldn't just say I, I'm, you know I can't go on with this I was halfway through it so I had a, a, a private nurse for Anne, uh, for, for Andrew mm -hmm. um, during the, the day and then I would go home at night after a long and incredibly stressful day interviewing these people who these people had uh, died um, then of course Andrew would wake up wouldn't he and he'd want to want to talk to me all, all night and he had all the, he had the most difficult um, trajectory to his dying mm -hmm. uh, in the end I rang my friend the, who was the director of nursing at that time her name flies out of my head and she's she's gone to God now um, I rang her and she said look bring him in you need some respite care bring him into Sacred Heart Hospice so we took him to Sacred Heart Hospice and they actually cared for him right up until he died now the night that he died um, I'd come down from Westmead I was there um, with him and I judged that his um, death was near from clinical mm -hmm. you know, signs and and I said to him, I was going, no, 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 mum, no, no. He said, I want you to go home. He said, there's nothing that I and my God can't handle. And that was the night he died. Mm. And he he actually asked me to leave him alone. And that has been an enormous, I haven't spoken about that before. It, it, it was an enormous thing, but that was his wish. Uh, and I, I went home. I went home. Thank you for sharing that with us, Teresa. Thank you for sharing that moment in your life. And I'm sure I haven't shared that with anyone. I'm oh. sharing it with my palliative care brothers and sisters. I think some of them have often thought Teresa's a bit fanciful. You know, if she, when I was. Um, teaching I always taught with stories to illustrate what I was trying to um, say um, all I know from from having had this honor one of the most wonderful things that has happened to me is that I've had five letters all two sent to the Catholic Weekly to be sent on to me uh, and others just come addressed to Teresa Plain in the Anzac Memorial village and they found me and they are from people who did my courses a time to live a time to die and changed their lives so they said they they one is a nun and at that age she went into palliative care and has been in palliative care ever since she is now 80 and working in palliative care as a, a volunteer another is a priest another is a nurse so if you've only impressed one person in the whole of my life 
with what palliative care is about and what it means to families and the fact that I had to live through the experience of two of the most major bereavements in one's life. To be able just to sit there and to understand what people are living through. It's very, very traumatic and we we need we need our palliative care nurses, we need our doctors. They need to be pushed more to the forward. We mustn't have this over, over medicalized a uh, system of, of people who uh, are dying. They they need to be cared for. They need to be pain free. They need to be able to enjoy their lives, not suffering. Sometimes what I see is futile treatments. I don't know whether I'm being forward in saying that, but um, or operations that. I guess that comes back to having those discussions up front in someone's end of life journey and people and families being really clear about what they want and 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 guiding health professionals with the treatment with the care that they they want and having that discussion really early absolutely Ian, but it's so hard for them yeah. you know i was there when um when the doctors were offering andrew treatment mm -hmm. but he was brave enough to say no I don't want that treatment. It's not going to save my life. I want to go home and be with my mum. Mm -hmm. um, that, 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 that's the difficult thing. The, the, the family, they love the person that is dying. The person that is dying loves the family, but they don't want, they don't want no. to, have to have to make this decision. So you need these really skilled, supportive, people who can gradually bring the family to realize that this is happening, the dying person to know that this is happening. And then you'll see this beautiful care and people will die in a state of peace and the those left behind are not going to be so bereaved. Yeah. Teresa, it is a difficult thing to talk about, but I have no doubt the wisdom and the experiences you've shared with us today will open those conversations for people and make them just that bit easier. And I would love to think that hearing your story today inspires people to go into palliative care work, to be those doctors, to be those nurses, to follow in your footsteps and provide that sort of care that, that you've outlined. Thank you so much for your time today. Your 90 years is really difficult to try and pack into a 30-minute conversation and I'd invite people to go and, and read the article that my colleague Sonia Karma has written. I'll post a link with this video and it details your life much more fully than we've been able to today. But I'm, I'm so grateful for the wisdom and the heart that you've brought to our conversation and your life, Teresa, and really wish you well come Australia Day. We'll be cheering you on to be the senior Australian of the year. Ian did. Don't forget to cheer the West Australian doctor who is nominated for palliative care. Wow, I can't wait to meet her. Um, Professor Samar Amun, she is a very yeah. impressive lady, a lot like you, Therese, and it's, it's great to see palliative care elevated to this platform in 2023, something to celebrate, something to, to, to take advantage of, I think. Absolutely. I wish I was 40 years younger and had that <laughs> energy that I had there. Thank you.
Teresa, we wish you well. Thank you so much for your time today and sharing your wisdom. Thank you. Take care.